True Spirituality, Part 4, In the Spirit's Power. In Episode 3, we looked at the account from the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 9, of the Mount of Transfiguration as a clear preview of our coming resurrection. We have here Moses, who represents the Old Testament dead, and we have the apostles who are present, Peter, John, and James. But we also have Elijah, who is one of the two men of the Old Testament, Enoch being the other, who are spoken of as, quote-unquote, the translated ones. It is interesting to note that in some of the Apostle Paul's letters, his letters make up almost half of the New Testament writings, he states clearly that at the coming of Jesus Christ for his people, there will be translated ones. We read this in two of his letters, including this passage from his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So here we have translation as well as resurrection. This is an historic situation. It is not in some mythical never-never land of mere religious psychology or religious philosophy. At some point in actual human history, and there will be believers on earth until the last moment, Christ will come and the dead will be raised. But the Christians who are alive then will be changed in the twinkling of an eye in space and in time. It's interesting to note that verse 58 sets the resurrection and then the translation together in relation to our present life, calling for a response in the present situation. Verse 58 reads, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In our present life, our present situation, we are to stand firm, to not be moved by anything, always giving ourselves fully to the Lord's work. It is what we refer to toward the end of part three, the active as opposed to passive approach to Christian living, true spirituality. However, this brings us to another line of questioning. One might ask, what happens between the Christian's death and his resurrection? Am I going to be out of contact with history and out of contact with sequence? Between my death and resurrection, am I nowhere? Do I just disappear into some void? The Bible is very clear that this is not the case. 
For example, in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, we have the scene whereby Jesus, speaking to the dying thief on the cross next to him, promises the man that today you will be with me in paradise. That day, in an area of sequence before sundown, since this would be the end of the Jewish day, the man would be with Jesus. Instead of being nowhere in a philosophic other, he will be with Christ in paradise. The Apostle Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The Bible presents only two states for the Christian, to be here in the flesh or, having died, to be with the Lord. It is exactly the same thing Jesus set before the thief on the cross. The Christian is not presented at the time of death as being out of contact with sequence or being nowhere any more than Jesus is out of contact with sequence or is nowhere between his resurrection and his second coming. This is, of course, at odds with the view that places the afterlife as an immediate entry into nothingness or being in some shrouded area, a place of misty, ethereal formlessness. The difference between this view or set of views and the biblical view is stark indeed. Standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Elijah, who was translated yet has a body. He is having a conversation with Moses, who had died and been buried, and, of course, Jesus Christ. So the translated one, Elijah, and the dead and buried one, Moses, can share in a conversation, be seen, and be recognized. But even stronger than this are Jesus' own words when he had been raised from the dead. When they first encountered the risen Christ, they thought he was a spirit, and this despite the fact that they were supernaturalists, not naturalists. They very much believed in the spiritual realm and perhaps would not have been shocked to have seen a spirit of some kind. What they were not prepared for was the physical resurrection. So in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, we read of Jesus saying to them, "'Touch me and see.'" A ghost, a spirit, does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He then asked for something to eat to prove to them he was not just a spirit. The proof was not just in seeing, conversing with, or even touching him, but the eating of food right in front of them. The call to the Christian as he looks forward to possible death is not to be afraid, but to realize that at the moment of death he will pass into that moment today, like for the dying thief, whatever our today is. That the Christian is immediately with Christ should crush the fear of death for those who have accepted Jesus as Savior. From the Bible's viewpoint, this is not given just as a psychological hope. The dead are really there in a conscious state with Jesus. They are there. It is as much a part of the total universe as you are sitting here listening this very moment. It's not in some philosophic other, but in reality. Time is important. 
the thief was not there until he got there. At this stage in our study, we have established that there are two equal lines of reality presented to us in the universe. We are in the seen world, and there are also Christians who have died who are with Christ now. This is the Bible's view of truth. There are two streams, two strands of space-time reality, with one in the seen and one in the unseen. So, having concluded in part three that the Lord tells us to live as though we had died, gone to heaven, seen the truth there, and then come back to this world, he is not asking us to act on just some psychological motivation, but on what really is, what is ultimately real. That is the second line, the second strand of reality, that of the unseen, in which we personally will share between the moment of death and our return with resurrected bodies to the seen world at Christ's return. Therefore, I am to live now by faith grounded in three space-time realities, what has occurred, such as Christ's death and resurrection, what exists right now in the unseen realm, including my loved ones who had accepted Christ as Savior and died are now with him in an actual place, and what is to come, including my future bodily resurrection and return with Christ. This should inspire us to live in a manner reflecting an authentic and expectant hope that takes shape in having a more joyous and tranquil outlook no matter the particular circumstances we experience in life. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, provides the animating principles for how best to be the creatures God made us to be, human beings bearing his image. And in Christ, we are presented with the calling to be this creature by choice, to be creatures glorified. But now we have to turn to the practicality of it all. How is it possible to live this way? All this talk of the Christian life, true spirituality, which is basically the ideals taught and exemplified by Christ and the apostles, is often quite daunting and feels sometimes out of reach, doesn't it? What is the answer to the how of it all? How are we going to live this way if we are to think of this not merely as some sort of abstract religious experience, a set of unattainable ideals, a combination of mood and moment, a vague, meaningless existential experience? How do I get started? Is it in forms of asceticism, which is an intentional forsaking of certain pleasures or imposing forms of suffering upon the self, or through ecstatic, even exotic experiences? The answer to all these is no. The Bible doesn't give to us as just some kind of religious idea what it is to follow Christ that includes mechanical observances, but intensely practical ones. Recall the passage read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read verses 4 and 5 again. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. We see here God drawing two factors of reality together, our being with Christ when we die and at the present time with equal certainty, if we have accepted Christ as Savior, we have the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, 
dwelling within us. These two elements are not to be thought of separately. When I die, it is certain that I will be with the Lord. Those who have trusted Christ and have gone before us are there with him this very instant. But at the same time, in this moment, I have the Holy Spirit living within me. So when Jesus said to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise, that's Luke chapter 23, verse 43, he meant it. That applies to me as well in my life and in this time. For me to die is to immediately be with the Lord. It is not just an idea, it is a reality. But at the same time, Christ gives the promise just as definitely that when I have accepted him as my Savior, he lives in me. They are equal reality. They are two streams of present reality, both equally promised. Christ really lives in me. The Christ who was crucified, whose work is finished and who is glorified now, has promised to bring forth fruit in the Christian just as the sap of the vine brings forth fruit in the branch. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5, the apostle records Jesus as saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There we have it. Connected to the glorified Christ by faith, a wholehearted trust in him, that results in his very spirit living within and enabling a person to live, speak, think, and even desire in the ways that lead to flourishing as the image bearers of God we were created to be. This is true Christian mysticism, which is a term you don't hear often in modern Christian circles and should not alarm you. Christian mysticism is not the same as non-Christian mysticism, but it is not a lesser form. It's actually a deeper mysticism since it is based on historic space-time reality, on propositional truth about how things truly are. True Christian mysticism doesn't call for a denial of reason or the intellect. And there is no loss of personality, no loss of the individual person who is an image bearer of God as in other forms of mysticism. In fact, in much if not most of Eastern versions, the loss of personality is an essential aspect of their framework. For instance, take Shiva who is one of Hinduism's key manifestations. He came and fell in love with a woman. Shiva put his arms around her in a loving embrace and immediately she disappeared and he became neuter. Eastern mysticism is grounded in the loss of personality of the individual. Not so in Christianity. Christian mysticism is communion with Jesus Christ and him bringing forth fruit through me with no loss of personality. It is me as one created in God's image being drawn into a relationship that involves me being more and more conformed to what that image is supposed to be. As we approach the end of our study of the basic considerations of the Christian life and true spirituality, we need to keep three points in mind moving forward. First concerns the how. It is not, nor can it be, done simply in our own strength. Us bearing the fruit as a connected vine has one active ingredient, 
the glorified Christ will be the one doing it through us. This brings us to the second point, which is the agency of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we read, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One application from this truth is that a Christian doesn't have to wallow in shame in those times where we struggle and sometimes blow it as we face the reality of our current existence in a fallen realm that includes our own inclinations still pulling us to conform to the world and the self as central. The Bible doesn't teach that we're going to ever be perfect in this life and the struggles to move against the grain of the world around us and our own desires are very real and can at times be unrelenting. The struggle is real. But we have the promise that God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit so we don't have to feel ashamed. When we fall, we can get up off the ground and back on the path following Christ. Paul writes later in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The difference in all of this is that the Holy Spirit, a person, not just an idea, has been given to us to do a work within and through us. It is not to be in our own strength. Even further in that same letter, Paul writes in chapter 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you have put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit is specifically identified here. Chapter 8 is one of the central passages in all of the Bible in regard to the work of the Holy Spirit as the agent of the power and the person of the glorified Christ. There is not enough strength in ourselves, but the power and work of the glorified Christ is operational in, on, and through us by the agency of the Holy Spirit. This is what Christ meant when he said, as recorded in John chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. In a benediction in one of his letters, Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The reference to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit speaks of him as the agent of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, wherein Jesus could promise in John 14, not only that he, Christ, would not leave us as orphans, but that he would come to us. In reading the entirety of the New Testament, we find in the early church not a group of superheroes laboring together and getting things done on the basis of just their own talents and abilities, but the work of the Holy Spirit filling them with the power of the crucified and glorified Christ. This is how it is to be for us as well. Our third point is that this does not represent a passivity on our part as if our will, intention, and desire to carry out the Lord's commands aren't involved in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment lives. A prime illustration of this is Mary's response to the angel that we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. The angel tells her she is to give birth to the long-promised Messiah, which is rather unique and unrepeatable, the birth of the second person of the Trinity into this world. The Holy Spirit is to cause a conception in her womb. 
she could have said, I don't want to be this person. I want to remove myself from consideration. I respectfully decline. I want out of this. What would Joseph and my family say? She could have also said, I now have these amazing promises, so I will exert my force, my character, and my energy to bring forth this amazing promise. I have the promise. Now I will bring forth a child without a man. But that response would never have worked since she could not bring forth a child without a man by her own will any more than any other woman could. But there was a third thing she could say, which is beautiful. It is wonderful. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. There is the active passivity we have talked about. She took her own body by choice and put it into the hands of God to do the thing that he said he would do, and Jesus was born. She gave herself with her body to God. In response to the promise, yes, but not to do it herself. This is a beautiful, exciting, personal expression of a relationship between a finite person and the God she loves. Now, this is absolutely unique and must not be confused. There is only one virgin birth. Nevertheless, it is an illustration of our being the bride of Christ. We are in the same situation that we have these amazing and thrilling promises we have been considering, and we are neither to think of ourselves as totally passive as if we have no part in this, nor are we to think we can do it ourselves. If we are to bear fruit in the Christian life by the agency of the Holy Spirit, it's not us doing it, but him, faith must be acted on consistently by thinking on the basis of your promises. I am looking for you to fulfill them, Lord Jesus. Bring forth your fruit through me into this world. So now we stand before two streams of reality. Those who have passed and are with Christ now, and we who live now and have, because of the reality of the finished work of Christ, access to the power, not in theory, but in reality, of the risen and glorified Christ by the agency of the Holy Spirit. True spirituality is not achieved in our own energy. The how of this life is summed up in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in the same way, count yourselves, there is the faith, dead to sin, there is the negative aspect, but alive to God, the positive aspect in Christ Jesus. This is the how. And there is no other. It is the power of the crucified, risen, and glorified Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit by faith. This is true spirituality.